Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of the non-fiction books How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood, and my first novel, Insatiable, will be published by Sphere in February. There's a special signed edition available from Waterstones for anyone who orders it now. Huge thanks to all the listeners who've already pre-ordered. I also want to tell you about a strange, terrifying and hilarious book. A book filled with wizards, Shetland ponies, weird aquatic sports and, most frighteningly of all, underwear that talks back. Our very own producer Dale Shaw's book, The Haunted Underpants, can be enjoyed by readers who are, or have ever been, aged 7 to 12. The Haunted Underpants is available on Kindle for 99p, free on Kindle Unlimited, and it's currently being serialised on WFME Radio on Double Dip Recess with Roger and Amanda. Links to listen are in the show notes. Prepare to be scared. Now, on to this week's guest. Anthony Horowitz is truly prolific. You might know him from the Alex Ryder books, Foil's War on TV, or The Magpie Murders, or his latest book, Moonflower Murders. Anthony writes about heroic deeds and mysterious happenings, and that's what we found on his bookshelves. We talked about William Golding, John Winslow, and the crime writers you might not have heard of but need to read. We recorded this a little while ago during lockdown, so there's also some discussion of lockdown reading too. So have you been doing much reading in lockdown? I've done a lot of reading, yes, of course. I've been reading quite I've been reading a lot of murder mystery books that have been sent by various publishers to sort of hopefully for back cover quotes and that sort of stuff. And I've also just discovered the works of, of a man called um Don Winslow. It's a really funny thing. Last year I was invited to a literary festival called Capital Crime. And I met a rather unassuming man at that called Don Winslow. And um, I met him because I asked somebody to recommend a book. One of the great things about literature festivals is that you, um, you know, you meet other writers and you get recommendations of other books. And I asked somebody, what's a really good thriller? And they said, you've got to read The Power of the Dog by Don Winslow. So I picked up a paperback copy and bought it. And because he was in the room, I went over to get it signed. And as I say, he was a sort of a, I'd say he's about 50 years old. He's quite unassuming. He's, he seemed nice enough. Got him to sign this book and barely spoke to him and left. During the lockdown, my son borrowed this book and read it. I have a 29-year-old son downstairs. And um, he said, God, that is really good. So I read it. 
and it was better than really good. It was amazing. This is sort of the war and peace of, uh, of the narco wars. Set, the first volume is set mainly in Mexico. He then followed it some years later with a, a second book in the series, same characters, covering a very, very wide span of years. Uh, and the second book was called The Cartel. And then quite recently, many years later, the whole thing has taken him 20 years of writing. He finished it off with a book I finished, funnily enough, at five o'clock this morning, lying in bed. Um, and if there's one thing that I thank COVID for, it is I get up very early and I read a lot in bed now. Um, and the last one is called The Border. And as I say, and, that is, and it is extraordinary. I mean, my eyes have been opened to this man's talent and I'm a little bit ashamed that it has taken me so long to discover it. Are there any murder mystery writers who you think deserve a little bit more love or attention perhaps not contemporary ones but I'm thinking maybe over the 20th century do you think there's anyone who's unfairly neglected there are I mean there are some who have slightly gone out of fashion um John Dixon Carr is one of them actually um he writes wonderful locked door mysteries I mean he's very clever he created a character called Dr Fell who is quite an interesting detective I must say I read one I read his very first Dr Fell book over the period back with some um, this Covid I didn't terribly enjoy it it was way too complicated I think there is a danger in some of these golden age detective stories that they um get so immersed in the sort of intricacies of the plot they forget the character they forget the sort of the pleasure of it they forget even the language but some of his later books are much much better um other writers that I'd recommend that you, you might have been, I mean, is anybody now reading Marsh? I don't know. Uh, P.D. James isn't mentioned so much since she died, and I love some of her books. It's, it's, I think, apart from The Chosen Few, crime writers do tend to fade fairly rapidly. I will make one recommendation to you. I don't know if you know a Japanese writer called Soji Shimada. Oh, I don't. His crime novels are outstandingly good. Uh, he wrote one called The Tokyo Zodiac Mysteries, something like that anyway. Uh, and uh, Tokyo Zodiac Murders, and the other one is called The Crooked House, and the mechanism of murder and the sort of the twistiness of a story is more bizarre than anything I have ever come across. And, and they're not to everybody's taste, but I find them very, very enjoyable. That's the lovely thing about books, though, isn't it? They do wait for us, and sometimes there's got to be that time of having them in the house and then coming to them. I'm afraid to say I am a, my, one of my worst crimes is a number of books that I acquire, which means I'm sent them by publishers or I buy them in the shops or, um, uh, or, or I just sort of, they somehow turn up, they're gifts, whatever, which take sometimes years to read. I mean, that, and, it, and it's... Um, it's 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 a bad it's a bad habit, but but you're right. But at the end of the day, it's wonderful that they're there, and it's wonderful that they're there to be discovered. Are there any other books that you have found that have been languishing on your shelves that you've picked up during this period? Um, well, um, for a long time, I had a book by a man called A. E. Ellis called The Rack. And this, again, that came to me because of all people. Sebastian Fawkes was, um, you know, a, a wonderful novelist whose works I also very much admire. I uh, had told my wife that that was his favourite book. Um, and so I bought it and it sat there and it sat there. And it seemed quite a hard going book. I mean, it's about a tuberculosis clinic and about a young man suffering from this terrible illness. And I think, I can't remember now, if, I think it's between the wars and the clinic is in Germany. And it just sat there until one day I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. And, and I picked it up and I started to read it. And of course, it is the most wonderful and remarkable novel. If you want to read a novel about pain and suffering, and it is a very sad, very hard read. It, it's no wonder it took me so long. And I, it's not really a book to read right now, I would have thought, but it is absolutely superb and very eye-opening to how this disease was treated and how 
impossible it was to survive it, um, you know, until until a cure had been found. I do think it's interesting. There are but I mean, I'm very, very guilty of this. There are books I know that I really ought to read. And because I know, well, this is going to be about someone having a terrible time. It's quite difficult to kind of work up the enthusiasm for that and then often I am stunned by how good and moving they are because you know that's why we write books I suppose isn't it and that's a big part of being a human. It is absolutely of course I mean the whole point about reading is that you are empathizing and you are sort of uh, sharing experiences and therefore learning from them and illness is unfortunately a very major part of life so you know I recently reread um, La Peste Camus um, and you know, that again is a fascinating book to read right now because it does hold up a mirror to where we are. And it's extraordinary. Some of the sort of the similarities in, not so much in, in uh, obviously the medicine and the sort of the treatment and this development, but in sort of humanity and the way humanity embraces these terrible events. Yeah, I do read lots of books that are sort of quite depressing, but, the book, but I don't think I've ever read a book that has left me depressed, curiously enough. The, I don't know if you know this feeling when you finish a book and you're, you feel this enormous sadness, but you are leaving these characters behind and you are never going to have the pleasure of reading them and discovering them for the first time. And that happens a lot to me in, in books. Um, you can reread a book, but rereading is a very, very different experience to reading. So I get that, what you might call tristesse, when I finish a great book and, and know that that is, you know, that it's gone. But, but I've never been read a book that has actually made me depressed. Not a work of fiction, anyway. I just read a book called Happy All the Time by a writer called Laurie Colwyn, who's a contemporary American writer. And it's a really slight novel. It's set in New York in the 70s. And it's really just about two very good friends who are third cousins, but more like brothers. And it's about the women they marry and the people they love and how their lives pan out. And it's a really, it's a very closely observed book where there's very, very little drama and I think I read it, I started, I picked it up one morning, it had been a gift, and as you say, one of those books where I thought, I know I'll like this, and I must kind of get to this, and there's always so many other books coming in. And as soon as I finished the last page, I just burst into tears, and it was a happy ending, as much as it could be, because there wasn't too much to be unhappy about, but I was just missing everybody already, I'd so enjoyed being in their company. Well, there's a book I actually wrote called Oblivion, and it took me eight or nine years to summon up the courage to write it, simply because I knew it had an unhappy ending. I knew that the children, this is a young adult book, and I knew that, the, that it couldn't possibly end well for all of them. And I couldn't bear the idea of getting to the final pages and killing one of my characters. And uh, I do get that in a book, that a character doesn't have to die. It just means, you know, it's just, a, it's the white page that means the book is over, that last page that you turn, that means the character has gone, which is sort of the same thing. How did what you read and how you felt about books when you were, you know, a young man and a teenager, how has that shaped your young adult writing in terms of the feelings that you want your readers to have? Um, it's interesting. I wrote... 10 books for young adults. Um, Gruesome Grange, there were two of those, The Switch, Granny, the Diamond Brothers books, and a lot of others that were all, to a certain extent, less or more, by autobiographical. I was often using the same tropes of the lonely fat boy, the rich parents, the sort of slightly bizarre Victorian lifestyle, which are uh, horrible school, cruel teachers. And that was my world. It was reinterpreted. I never wrote about me, 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 but I did use my life. And it was only when I actually deliberately took a knife and cut that side of my writing away 
and said, I will no longer write about those sorts of kids. I'm going to write about a boy who is nothing like me and has no shared experiences, and I'll call him Alex Ryder, that my career took off. Uh, and it's a really funny thing. I can actually see it happen in that book, Stormbreaker, where this character comes up who is the opposite of me and who has nothing in common with me. Uh, and it was a liberation. That's really, really interesting. It's certainly curious looking back on my career. Those books, of which I'm proud, the earlier books, are still all of them in print and children still like them. And that The Switch is a book I'm very fond of, where uh, the story of a switch, it's that old sort of vice versa a version of that um, story where a very rich kid falls asleep and wakes up poor in somebody else's body uh, in a sort of a fun fair with terrible parents who are, you know, comical monsters and who, has to, who then gets involved in a crime and eventually meets himself, as it were, who's swapped bodies with him, who is now lording it up as a rich boy in a huge house. So it's a sort of just a vice versa swap book. But when I was a boy, that was very much one of my dreams. I was trapped in a rather strange, wealthy family and often used to dream about waking up as somebody else. So it's an autobiographical novel and it is a bridge between, it was the last of my sort of books about my own life and it's the one before Alex Ryder. It's the first book I wrote in which the characters change. It was a really interesting aspect of that book. But for the first time, the hero, whose name I think is Bob or Tad, I can't remember, it's one or the other, uh, or possibly both because they swap bodies, um, where at the end of the book he learns and he realizes that his life has changed. And until then, my children's heroes tended to just be children heroes. They defeated the villains and went back to bed sort of thing. So, and that was what led me in a way into the realization of Alex, who was a deeper and, and more, more interesting character who actually has, um, you know, real experiences as well as adventures. I think that when you're a young reader, there are broadly, there are more than two kinds of books, of course, but sometimes books where there's a very, very black and white moral universe are deeply appealing. I think that children have such a keen sense of justice and really want to live in a world where, you know, you do things and there are consequences and there's a, a logic to the moral. But then you read those first books where you do see people's evolution and you realise that a lot of humanity is about things being very complex and people changing and not always being consistent. And that's an exciting moment. Can you remember the first book you read with a changing hero? Well, I think probably one of the most profound books that I read when I was a young man growing up, I mean, I would have been about 20 when I read this, was, uh, oh no, earlier, much earlier. I, I was about 16 when I read The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley. That book is about somebody who changes. They change for the worse. The main character, Leo, starts life as a sort of a, he's a poor boy in a rich environment, obviously, and the story is that he goes to stay with a friend of his uh, in, a, in a large country house and gets caught up with the lives of the people there. And the book is, is narrated by an old man um, who is, whose life has been ruined by the experiences that take place in the book. And you sort of see it happening. You know, the first sentence is that famous, the past is another country, they do things different there. And the film, which has an absolutely extraordinary screenplay by Harold Pinter, has, I think it's Michael Redgrave as the narrator, who is a ghost-like figure who flits in and out of the action. And the book had a profound impression upon me because it, it sort of warned me where my life would go, that one day, I would be that older man and, and that the experiences I was having as a child were going to fuel that. 
So it, it stayed with me. It was also intended the first book of what I might call serious fiction that I read. It was impressed upon me by a teacher at my school that I should be reading something more than just sort of, you know, comics and adventure stories. And he suggested I should read this, for which I am eternally grateful. It was the beginning of the journey into literature. It's always so exciting when, the, you know, there is a particular book you can pinpoint when you have that intense connection with it. Uh, did that teacher recommend any other books? Were they an English teacher? I remember that he got me into William Golding, uh, The Spire. It's a book which I remember reading and enjoying very much. And of course, Lord of the Flies. And that, that was, those were two recommendations. The Spire is an extraordinary book. It's not so well known. Have you read it? I've never read it, no. It's, um, it's, it's about the construction of a cathedral in medieval times. And it goes into enormous detail about how these things are built. And uh, just that alone makes it interesting. The characters are extraordinary too. But it's, uh, it's, it's one of his less well-known books. And I remember reading that just after the go-between, as a matter of fact. So, yeah, I mean, it was always interesting to be prodded into sort of a... In, in, into finding books. I've, I've often said that, that, and you know, in defense of my own work as a, as, a, as a writer for young adults, that reading is sort of an adventure and a journey and that you need to begin in the foothills, which may be comics, it may be Alex Ryder, it may be Ian Fleming or whatever, but without that beginning, you don't stand so much chance of getting into the sort of the great mountain heights of, of Dickens and Tolstoy and, and, and Trollope and, and whoever. So, um, so I, I remember those books very much as being the stepping away from the sort of the, the foothills and beginning to go up the slope. I think that's absolutely true. One of my sisters has had a period of not reading and she's coming back to it. And it was something that she always felt obliged to do and that she never enjoyed. And I think coming from a family of readers, she felt a bit alienated. And she was reading quite a lot of dry historical fiction, which, you know, some people love, but it's not her thing at all. And she was kind of putting herself through it, thinking, oh, this is what reading feels like. And then she read something else that she loved. And, you know, she needed a, a foothold in the foothill, I guess. She needed to know that reading could feel pleasurable to her. Yes, it's something, it is It is something that um, I try and champion as far as I can at the time, you know, I'm talking to young people and to schools and children, etc. That that that, you know, the, the pleasure of reading it sort of has to be acquired. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily come easily. There's a sort of a. It's a, like a muscle that needs to be exercised, and the more you exercise, the easier it becomes. A bit like skiing, actually. You know, the, when you first ski for the first time, all you're doing is falling over. But gradually, you've come to like it, and the more you do it, the more gracefully you become, and the faster you can go, and the more dangerous things you can do. And I think reading is sort of a little bit like that. Uh, which is why I've always seen my my work, in a sense, as being you know the starter pack. Get get you going. You mentioned talking to your son about books. What have you shared with each other over the years? It is wonderful to share your literary loves with your children. And when it, when it clicks, it's a wonderful thing. Um, I suppose the books that my son and I have shared most thoroughly were the Flashman novels. Um, I don't quite know why, but George Donald Fraser came into my life when I was, I actually went to rugby school. And I'm sure you know that these books are about the bully, Flashman, who, uh, who is in Tom Brown's school days by Thomas Hughes. And he had, Donald Fraser had the brilliant idea of chronicling the life of this cad womanizer, very un-PC sort of anti-hero and to put him into every single piece of Victorian history. So he meets everybody from Queen Victoria to Otto van Bismarck to General Custer and, and many, many other characters who are less well known. And, and um, my son, who Nicholas, has always had a great fondness for history. And so I suggested he read these books and he adored them and read every single one of them. And, and we, we loved doing that together. 
Um, and my other son, in fact, both my sons uh, have read and loved a book called um, The Cain Mutiny by Herman Woke, which is a book I've talked about often in my time because um, I met Woke when he was 103 years old and tried to remake The Cain Mutiny. Uh, which is a book of the Second World War, a wonderful novel. It was filmed not very well, starring Humphrey Bogart. Uh, and it's a brilliant book, because I think that what is missing these days, and very, or not missing, but harder to find, are the books that sort of are entry-level adult books. So going from YA fiction into adult fiction, the book, you know, Alistair MacLean, Desmond Bagley, these sorts of authors did it for me when I was growing up. These were the bridges into adult fiction. And then, as I say, people like Hartley and, 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 and Golding were, were, you know, taking me further into better books. But, you know, the, uh, when I'm looking for books to recommend to sort of late teens, that's one I often use, and my sons absolutely loved it too. Interesting, it's an interesting thought, how few decent books came out of the Second World War, how few great books came out of the Second World War, when you think about it. It's, it always, it's, I think it's an interesting enigma. You know, 2,000 words, one, one side of the page only. Why are there so few books coming out of both wars, really, but certainly the Second World War. Great poetry, but not, not great novels. I'm just um, reading the Catholic Chronicles, which I think every other person I've interviewed on this podcast has recommended. And I'm, um, what is the book called? I'm sorry, I missed sorry, I Elizabeth Jane Howard's uh, Catholic Chronicles. It's about a wealthy family and wives and nieces and nephews and lots of, I think, very human stuff comes up. And, you know, she's very good on children. Really, 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 really funny. But she's always laughing with the children. And they seem to have a much clearer sense of what's going on than the adults. And a lot of it is that sense of being very, very left out, knowing things are very serious and they're being protected from things they don't want to be protected from. And I think that's a perennial part of childhood, really. Hmm. Oh, well, I've written it down. I'll probably, we were talking earlier about books you buy them and sit on a shelf for two years. So I'll probably go on that because I've got so much to read at the moment. Oh, but next but now, time there's a pandemic, Anthony. <laughs> oh, don't say such things, really. <laughs> I shouldn't tempt fate, should I? Um, do you have any favourite books about um, the wars, even if they weren't written in their aftermath? Well, I've mentioned the Cain mutiny. I, I liked Henri Remarque. Um, the um, All Quiet on the West, uh, Western Front is a, is, a, is a very fine book. Um, and somebody gave me an extremely good book. I'm going to forget its name now, about the uh, uh, war in Vietnam, where every single chapter is the story of one member of a unit, unit a platoon, a group, which is the title. It was actually given to me by Ryan Tuberty, who is an absolutely wonderful um, Irish uh, broadcaster and interviewer. And he has a, has, a, um, has a habit of giving his interviewees a book uh, to recommend, which he loves. And that was the book he gave me. And it was absolutely wonderful. Oh, what a lovely thing to do. I mean, as I get older, I'm afraid my memory is going. And also one of the things I'm finding hard is, is that my residual memory is going. So I, I read a book and I love it. But actually the memory of it is beginning, it fades faster than it did when I was younger. This is something I've noticed that I love the book at the moment of reading it, but not afterwards. Mm. And then there's the risk that you'll pick it up and you think you haven't read it and you'll get quite far in and then you'll remember. I have a memory that I think Stephen King, another writer whose work I rather like, um, wrote a book, an, an e-book, whereby each page deleted itself after you had read it. And in a funny way, that is now what is happening to me with my memory. You know, I'm in my 60s and it's, you know, I, I still read an enormous amount, but, it, but I retain less. And on the subject of the screen, I wanted to ask you about screenwriting and whether um, there are many books that you've kind of got in your back pocket as, you know, projects that either fantasy projects or potential, you know, real things that might happen, things you'd love to adapt. Well, 
I mean, there are books I would like to adapt, and funnily enough, La Peste is one of them. I, uh, I mentioned the Camus. The, uh, the reason I recently reread it was there was a producer looking around for that. I've also been approached uh, possibly to do a screenplay, or at least I haven't been approached. My agent asked me if I'd be interested in doing a screenplay of The One and Once and Future King, the Arthurian legend, are told in a very, very novel and interesting and curious way. A book I read in my childhood, haven't read since. It also, therefore, belongs to your other question about books waiting on the shelf, this time to reread. I bought a very nice edition of it. <clears throat> and I'm waiting to read that. I would love to adapt that. Um, I'm always looking for, for books to adapt because the adaptation, I always feel Andrew Davis is so lucky because um, adapting Dickens, adapting Austin, whatever, half the work's been done for you by somebody so, you know, very brilliant. In, the, in terms of sort of the classics, I've often thought about adapting George Gissing's Our New Grub Street, which is one of the greatest books ever written about writers and about what it is to be a writer uh, in the 19th century. Um, I don't I know that it. book, I'm afraid. Tell me about it. You don't know this book? No. It's funny. Gissing is one of my favourite authors. Um, Netherworld is another of his books. And um, uh, what I mean, I've read, I've read a great, great many of his books and the titles aren't going to come to me now. But New Grub Street is by far his masterpiece. He's a little bit later than Dickens. They must have been writing at about the same time, but he's a bit, bit later into the century. And he's looking very much at the underbelly of life. His, his books are inhabited by, you know, people living in poverty or in prostitution, uh, people who are, you know, starving or ill. Um, they are quite bleak, the books. And in fact, I suspect, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about books that make you sad, possibly the reason why he hasn't survived so well into the 21st century and fewer people know about him. The Underclass is another of his wonderful books, which really tears at the belly of what it is like to be poor and to be dispossessed. Um, I think it is because his books are so sad and depressing and often with unhappy endings that people have um, turned their backs on them. But, but I've always liked his work and I've always thought the new Grub Street would make quite an interesting adaptation. And that's about writers and writing. Yeah, it's about it's about wealthy. I mean, the, the book, it, it's a book that inspired another favourite writer of mine, George Orwell. George Orwell wrote a book, which I think is, again, perhaps the finest book ever written about writing and what it is to be a writer, which is Keep the Aspidistra Flying. And that book is very much based on New Grub Street, where he's looking at, you know, the, in, in the 19th century, if you didn't sell your book, if you didn't get published, you starved. These people were starving in a garret. There's a wonderful chapter where a writer, uh, his house is on fire. And he rushes back in and the firemen try to stop him and say, well, look, there's nobody in the house. There is, there is, there's no reason to go back in. But there is, his manuscript is in the house. And of course, this is the age before carbon paper, before photocopiers, before, I, you know, the iCloud. Um, so he's gone in to save his manuscript. This being a, uh, a guessing novel, the manuscript is, of course, eventually published and does do no business. It doesn't do him any good anyway. I mean, he still ends in poverty. So it's about, it's about just writers and about, and about the person who sells out and the, the fashionable writer. It's just the world of writing with a romance in it too. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, a good, you know, heady 19th century saga. That sounds great. And I imagine one of those books that I'd find comforting in a way that, you know, nothing much changes really in a broad sense. Well, I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I think that, you know, the economic conditions for many writers are are not as they should be. And that uh, there are too many writers, especially now where the the publishers a far, you know, I think have a far keener eye for the big bestseller, you know, the, 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 the book that's auctioned at, at um, Frankfurt and which everybody goes for, which is going to be, you know, I read a book, I'm not going to name it, uh, last week, because uh, I didn't much like it and I never liked talking negatively about living authors, but um, this was a, a, a crime story which, which sold for an enormous amount of money and, um, and, you know, they're looking for the instant hit and the series. 
And when, this, when things are so weighted towards one book, it is much, much harder for, for new writers to, to break through. Um, I speak as somebody who took, you know, 20 years to get myself known, but, um, but I think it's probably e- it was easier for me when I started than it is now. Are you glad that happened? Are you glad that you had a, a run-up time to just know how it felt to be a writer and be a storyteller before there was a sort of sudden, you know? It's a very good question. I think that um, I've often said to young writers and to new writers that your early days as a writer are your best days. The excitement of aspiring, of hoping, of dreaming, of thinking that this is going to be the one, of waiting, is in many ways better than the position you get into where you are an established author and the expectations are on you now to produce books that will sell large amounts of copies. You're looking down from the top of the hill, if you like. You, there's a, the only way to go is to fall off the edge. So yes, I mean, you know, the, uh, am I glad? I wasn't at the time. You know, when you're a young writer and your books aren't getting noticed and you open the, the, the review pages and they're not being reviewed and it's always, you know, Roald Dahl or whoever it is at the time, you know, who is the big noise and it's not you, you feel an immense sense of frustration. It, it's dis- it can be disappointing. You have to, you know, you think being published is not the end. It's the beginning. It's, it's the beginning of a very, very long journey. And you have to learn that. But, you know, if my first book had been, my, had been a huge hit, would I have been sorry if I'd written Harry Potter? <sighs> I'm happy the way it's gone for me. It's been fine. I think it's quite nice to have something to look forward to and to see sort of steady growth. I'm, I think I'm not sure I'd have been able to cope with instant success. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We'll be back to Anthony soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. It's a book by a former guest and friend of the podcast, V for Victory by Lissa Evans. This is the third book in a series, but while you should definitely read The Crooked Heart and Old Baggage, you do not need to have read them to fall for V, Noel and Winnie. 
This book is charming, funny and cosy, but it also captures humanity at its darkest and most vulnerable. It's the book I'd give to anyone who told me they were finding the world a little much and were craving some intelligent good cheer. V for Victory by Lissa Evans is published by Transworld and out now. Now, back to Anthony. Books about writing are fascinating when they are about the trials and hardships and the ups and downs and the tiny triumphs. Since I'm, since you mentioned that, I mean, thinking I, would, I talked briefly about Keep the Expedition to Flying, in which Gordon Comstock manages to sell some poetry. And that is pretty much the end of his career. I mean, he takes some money, blows it, gets drunk, behaves appallingly, nearly destroys his life, and then sort of slides into sort of obscurity. The whole book is about writing for pleasure, writing for purity, writing poetry, versus the money god, what Orwell calls the money god, which I think is a critical underpinning of every writer's career. This annoying Amazon man is still ringing. I'm afraid I must go and ask him to... Dear, oh dear, sorry about that. That's all right, don't worry. Do you know... Um... Are you expecting any books in particular to arrive? Um, I am expecting some books because I'm doing research. And so a lot of my reading, this is one of the problems incidentally of, of, the, of the amount I write, which is that my reading is divided between books for pleasure. All reading is a pleasure, but I also have to do books for research. And I'm, I'm writing a book which may be set in 1964 in Russia. So I've been looking to try and find books about Russian history. Very, very difficult to find the books I actually need. I'll have to probably find somebody who was alive then to give me the information that I want. You know, like, it's a sort of information that's very hard to glean from books like, uh, I don't know, what brand of whiskey you might have drunk in Moscow in 1964, if it was even available. So, so I'm doing a lot of that sort of research. Um, and I read enormous, I mean, when I was writing Foil's War, the TV series, the amount of books that I read about the Second World War, I could take you into the other room and show them to you. I mean, there are, you know, there are 50, 100 of them on shelves of different aspects of different stories that I was writing about. I think that what a lot of people really um, adored about uh, Foyle's War, which, you know, I'm a fan. My, um, my dad is, I think it's probably his favourite thing that's ever been on television. I think he's watched and re-watched I don't know how many times. And I think he was quite pleased about the lockdown because he had an excuse to watch Foil's War from start to finish again. Um, but it is, it's those details that seem quite small, but are so meaningful about, you know, what people drank and what people wore and, you know, how people thought about going to the shops and things. There are two absolutely wonderful books. One is by Angus Calder, and the other one is by Norman Longbait. I think those are the correct names about the Second World War. They're very thick volumes. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to see if I can find out. How We Lived Then, Norman Longbait is that one. Uh, and it's, it's, it's absolutely, because what these books do, I'll give you, they give you the answer. And Angus called it The People's War. Those are the two books I'd recommend in my non-fiction recommends if you're interested in the Second World War. Um, Norman Longbait used mass observation. I don't know if you're aware of that, that in the war, somebody had this brilliant idea of just interviewing people every day about what their feelings were, what their thoughts were, what they'd had for breakfast, what they were doing with their lives, um, you know, how optimistic or scared they were, all these sorts of things. So what you got in mass observation was an absolutely living record of an island race at a particular period in time. And for a dramatist like me, I mean, you know, I could have found a thousand stories in those two books about people's activities. And in fact, every single story, pretty much, that I wrote in Foyle's War was inspired by something that I read in either one book or the other. And every time I went back to them. So my habit would be that I would find a little tiny, tiny detail. I'll give you an example. For example, that in 1940, they built coffin factories in London, but kept them secret because they didn't want anybody to know 
um, that they were expecting loads of people to die in the blitz. And I find that little detail, not so much the coffin factories, which is quite grim, but the, the need to hide them. The idea that there were buildings that pretended to be something but were something else. So you think about that, and when you start to research, you know, as the aspects of the Blitz and the actual mortality figures and what happened, etc., and you and so you get one clue out of Norman Longmate takes you on a journey through maybe three or four different books. Um, another book I read was by Edward Edmund Lukacs, I think his name is, called Five Days in May, and absolute, which again was the was the uh, basis of a, of a. Um, of, a, of an episode of Foyle's War, which is all about how Churchill um, resisted the temptation to go to Mussolini and seek peace with Hitler. In May, there was an opportunity to sue for peace, to actually not have a war. And it's about that period of event, that series of, you know, the events that made Churchill decide to continue. And it is one of the most thrilling historical books I have ever read. And it's as rich and as and as as uh, profound as any work of fiction I've ever read. Too that sounds fascinating because when I think about that period, I sort of imagine everyone just being very not emotionless at all, but you know, quite sensible and quite proper and quite morally centred. They probably were, you know, every bit as confused and conflicted and unsure and panicky as we would be now. And as there are so many, there are so many uh, similarities between then and now. I mean, one of the things that I learned from the research into Foyle's War was that old adage about history repeating itself, but not so much history as, as emotion, as people's, the way people respond. I mean, I, I, I remember reading about people who used to park their cars outside London and sleep in the cars to avoid the bombing. And there were also things called funk holes, the original episode called the funk hole, where people booked into hotels to, um, again, avoid the bombing. And they booked in for the entire length of the walk. Can you imagine just every day waking up to the same group of people and playing bridge and tennis and going for walks and chatting and knowing all the time that your behavior is reprehensible. But I would say that even during this COVID that we've been sitting through, there have been people who have behaved similarly anyway. Uh, and, and, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not criticising them. I'm just saying it's, it's interesting, but that is how, you know, how things happen. I read a fascinating anonymous account of a, an unnamed writer talking about fleeing. I think he went to a second home in Cornwall at the beginning and, you know, said he sort of, he felt like a, a deserter, that he knew what he was doing was difficult to defend but he was still doing it and sort of making one decision and, you know, thinking of your family, but not the wider world. But also, I think, knowing a lot of other people in that position. And I think they had a WhatsApp group where they said, we can't tell anybody that we're here, that what a lovely day and look at this bird and look at the garden. And I was thinking, I suppose, about how in an age of social media, we're all sort of voluntarily doing constant mass observation. That's a very interesting thought. Uh, but is it true, I wonder, because... The problem with social media is that it is, is it the truth? Is it, is what you write on social media the truth or is it a, a sort of an abstraction or a representation of a truth that you would like to be believed? I, I'll give you an example. I will regularly tweet nice things about books, particularly if they're by friends. I tend to avoid anything negative. Um, I'm often quite depressed, but I never, put out a tweet that's depressed because I'm presenting an avatar of myself on Twitter, for example. I'm not saying it's not true what I put out. Everything is true, but it is selective. That's what I'm trying to say, I suppose. Social media is very, very selective. Even the people that you choose as your mates on Twitter are going to be people who agree with you broadly. Um, so you, that's why you get such a sort of an intensified 
view of the world that always seems to agree with you. Uh, and I think that uh, I, I think that's different. I think that the way we talk to each other now and the way we express ourselves, because we are so much more open to judgment as well. You know, I have been in a Twitter storm in my time for saying the wrong thing in the wrong way. And so even as I speak to you now, there's always a voice whispering, I be very careful what you say. I mentioned earlier a book I didn't like, but I didn't tell you the author or the title. I don't want to get into a spat with anybody. You know, it's that sort of thing. I think there's a combination of fear and a, com and a combination of, of, of projection and a combination of censorship that makes social media different to mass observation. Did you really expect such an intense conversation at this time of the day? I'm sorry. <laughs> best in the morning um no. I'm, I'm amazed to be having a conversation at this level with you when you finished a book at five o'clock this morning i always wake up quite early i i and um as i say one of the things that's changed in covid is that instead of reading the newspaper i read fiction but going back to what you were saying about mass observation not an impartial observer you know writing things down and asking the same questions of everybody there is nothing there but there is still that human desire, I think, to tell a story and to make a record. And I think that's that's what it is, you know, that we all want to control our own narratives. And there's a lot of lying and dissembling and presenting and editing. But it is a, a kind of truth. It's the truth that we want to tell or that we choose to tell. Social media also, social media has other problems, which is that it, first of all, has no shades of grey. And I think people also rush to judgment much faster on social media than they do if they're talking to somebody in the street where you may be able to get an impression of the person. You know, when I, as I mentioned, was in a Twitter storm, people were sending me horrible insults over social media, but they didn't know me. They had an idea of who I was from the media and the social media, but that wasn't me. And so I think that, that I, I do disagree with you, I think. I don't think I can draw a comparison between social media and that. And I think if people tried to judge our century from what they found on social media a hundred years from now, they'd have a pretty unpleasant view of what sort of people we were. Well, I do think Twitter is, I was going to say, uniquely awful. Maybe Twitter and, and Facebook. I gave up but on Facebook. Twitter is wonderful if you're a writer and you get kids who want to write to you and say they like your books in 20 words and they can get a two-word, three-word, five-word answer back from their author of choice almost immediately. That's, that's a wonderful thing. Um, so so I, I, I use Twitter very, very carefully. I don't get into politics on it ever. Irony. Twitter does not understand irony. You know, you can make a joke, but you must be sure that you put a little face next to it with the eyes dripping with laughter and a big smile to say that was a joke, or people will take it completely seriously. So, you know, there's no, this sarcasm does not work on Twitter. Um, uh, jokes even you have to be careful i was just thinking about this because i've been using twitter for a long time and i think it used to feel very very different and you know i think it has become something you know i agree with a lot of what you were saying about you know that it's everything said sort of takes on an inflammatory quality and people go on and, and want to be inflamed it was you know the, the clickbait element i think that was being exploited which is a shame it, it's 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 more subliminal than that and it's nastier than that and i had an example of this only last week a newspaper ran a tiny diary piece about me i'd written an article in the spectator and it referred to my piece as a rant r-a-n-t and it just sort of it made my eyebrows rise a bit because i'd written a perfectly reasonable piece and i wasn't ranting at all if anything i was being sort of gently ironic and, and calm and it is just language. One single word in a newspaper report 
or in a headline in particular, changes the entire truth of what, what is being written. Uh, and it, it is, I'm, I'm very interested in the way language is twisted against people. I'll give you the most obvious example of it was the Brexit argument, where Brexit, people who wanted, wanted to leave Europe were Brexiteers, which summons up the idea of musketeers and their swashbuckling adventurers. People who wanted to stay in Europe were Ramonas, which gave the no notion of negative people sitting at home moaning about things. And those two words very, very quickly passed into the currency of everyday language and very much, I think, um, coloured the, the argument and indeed the result of that referendum. So it is, I think, very interesting, the insidious use of language. Trump does it all the time. Every single one of his political opponents gets so it's sleepy Joe Biden now, where the word sleepy used over and over and over again in tweets and on that gives a suggestion that Joe Biden is now past his prime, that he's too old to be uh, president, that he is you know, not up to the job. And it sort of becomes accepted. I think in Trump's name calling, it's been, it's been found out and, and, and probably has less impact than it once did. And he, but he is nonetheless the first world leader I know to attach these sort of subriquets to his political enemies in the hope that they will become part of the narrative. It makes me think a little bit of Scrabble where being a person who has a large vocabulary does not really help you win that game at all. You know people who use language in a delicate and nuanced and respectful way are sort of floundering whereas people who are very you know, direct and extreme. We wouldn't think of Trump as a masterful user of language, but chillingly, he sort of is, because he, I'd never thought about this before you said it, the way he seems to be dumb, for want of a better word, and yet he's able to use language in the most manipulative way. And um, as a writer, if I could trigger such extreme emotion and feeling in people I'd be delighted to do that although I wouldn't want them to feel the way they feel when he speaks and I wouldn't want to achieve his ends it's not something that one often talks about with books but language the way books are written to me is terribly important I mean you know I love Jane Austen not as, as much for her the world of Austen novels and the characters and, 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 the, and, the, and the, the fun of them but I also love the language the rhythm Beautiful language. I mean, Obama, if you're going to compare Trump with another president, Obama was a wonderful linguist and his speeches were beautifully modulated and such. And in fact, actually, Trump is not a master of language. He can't actually string five words together in any meaningful way. He's a master of meanness and pejorative and, and insults and, and offensiveness, which is not the same thing. What I was discussing earlier was a sort of an insidious, a sort of an, uh, the, the, the subtext, the sort of the subconsciousness that exists in all written and spoken language where people choose their words carefully. You and I have managed to talk now for 45 minutes. We have not resorted to a single oath or bad, bad language or, or, or unpleasant language. We have tried to talk in a civilized way. You and haven't called me sleepy once. <laughs> I, and I, I just think something I noticed in modern society, if one thing has changed in the years that I've been alive, it is that the people who lead our countries and the columnists and people who are in the public eye resort very, very rapidly to the meanest and vilest language to express their views. And I think that was very much part of the Brexit argument, that language suffered a, a, a blow, suffered a knock. To skip back a little bit to Austen and um, back to books, I think that what makes her a... A master of a linguist is that you know the writing is is beautiful but it's 
funny. And she is able to be so very funny because of the way she can use language to kind of skewer people and imply so much with such economy. Um, and I was wondering if you have any favourite funny books. Well, Woodhouse springs immediately to mind, all the Jeeves and Worcester books, which are, which are, you know, I mean, he creates a language of his own and they are a delight to read every time. Uh, and, and those are certainly books that um, I, I would put very up high up on my list of funny books. Um, I used to like Sharp. I mean, it's funny. Do you remember Tom Sharp, the novels, Blot on the Landscape and all those books? They were very sort of middle of the road. It's interesting. I always think about them because I loved them in my 20s and read them a great, you know, all of them. And they've gone. Isn't that interesting how a, a writer could be in your lifetime, huge for a decade, and then just gone? Uh, and who reads them now? Um, so, but those, those were books that, that were funny and, and used to make me laugh. What you you can you name a book that makes you laugh? Well, tell me tell me some comic novels. Uh, I've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but um, less by Andrew Sean Greer. It's one of the funniest books I've read this year, and I think again it's because it's a humour where you're always on the protagonist's side. I've reread a lot of Barbara Trapedo in the lockdown. I don't know Barbara Trapedo at all. I might write all these down. I'm getting my list up, yeah? Well, I will um, I will send them to you. We can have a non-Twitter war, perhaps, about um, funny books. I just <laughs> read um, the Craig Brown's book about the Beatles, one, two, three, four. Well, I, love, I love some of Craig Brown's writing. I haven't read the new one about the Beatles yet, but I've, I've read some of his earlier books, and they are, I mean, his satires, of course, he does in Private Eye are, are so wonderful, and, uh, and books like Imaginary Friends, which are collections of those um, pieces i'm trying to remember my memory is so terrible this is it makes it so embarrassing for this conversation he wrote a wonderful book with a hundred characters and it was a sort of a it was a, like a sort of a, a, um, a circle they all somehow connected with each other a met b who met c who met d and they and they formed a gigantic like a dangerous liaison type thing but of comical incidents in people's lives princess margaret was one of them and i, I can't remember the name of the book it was a hundred something or something and it was but anything craig brown does he is without any question one of our funniest and most satirical, you know, greatest satirists. Oh, his book that's all about Princess Margaret, Mom Darling, A Hundred Glimpses of, that's... Which I've also read, that's a wonderful book too. It's one of the funniest books I've ever yes. read. And I think what makes it great is, and what makes him, you know, a wonderful journalist, is he is reporting things that had happened, but he's got an eye for the details, that, like um, the bit about Roddy Llewellyn fleeing and going to the airport and saying, I must get out of here, take me anywhere. And I think he goes to Guernsey. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's basically it. He's got a very, very good, a very distinctive voice. Is that true? I think the comic writing perhaps does need that. He has absolutely unique voice. You, you, know, you know it's his work within a moment of reading it. Well, I'll just mention one other writer who I find that I like very much, Bill Bryson. Yes. He's actually extremely funny. And I like a lot of his books. Uh, um, the earlier ones are, of course, the funniest ones. Uh, but even when he gets into, you know, his most recent one is The Body. And um, before that, there was, I've got it over here on the shelf, um, uh, A Complete History of Almost Everything. And there again, it's a very, very distinctive voice. And the books are fascinating in themselves. And uh, the travel ones are great. But actually, I think I prefer the science ones even more. Because it's so wonderful to learn whilst at the same time smiling. I have wanted to read The Body for a long time. And that might be the final the recommendation that pushes me. No, please do. It is, it is a, it's a terrific book. And it's... And, uh, uh, and full of stuff that you just don't know. I mean, I love, his the chapter on the brain alone is worth the price of entry. It's just this idea of how little we know about 
the most important part of our body. It's absolutely fantastic. I can't remember who it was, but on a podcast, someone described the brain. Most of us treat it like um, a boxed iPhone. You know, we have no idea of just how we can use it. But it's not just that. I mean, yes, it is absolutely true, but there are all sorts of things that this computer does and my iPhone does that I have no idea that it's there and will never actually use. But, in, but I suppose it is absolutely true because the brain, vast swathes of it are just grey matter. It is, the, it is the biggest unknown in the universe of what it is capable of, how it does it, where memory is stored, how memory is stored, why memory goes, all these questions, which Ryson talks about in his book. You know, it is, it is just a fantastic... I think there's something rather heartening about the fact that we're so clever and yet know so little about the most fundamental part of ourselves. This new project about Russia in the 60s, is that going to be a, a novel or is it for the screen? It's a novel. Yeah, I, I only write novels. I mean, in terms of books, I write books for young people and old people, but I, don't, I never will. I mean, I would like one day to, to do maybe something in the world of non-fiction, but, uh, but uh, fiction is my, is my bag. Yeah, it's just a straightforward sort of thriller. It's an, I mean, this is lockdown work, really. I'm not planning to write it anytime soon. I've just finished the novel. I've just done um, Moonflower Murders, which is my next big novel coming out later this year, which is a sequel to Magpie Murders, which is one of those sort of whodunit, about whodunits, a sort of a book within a book. And, um, and having finished that, I'm sort of using this time to sort of just cast about for what I might do next. And I've been thinking about Russia in the 60s for a while. Um, one of my favourite Alex Ryder books, Russian Roulette, uh, is sort of set in that period. And um, I thought I might return to it and, and have a look around there. So I've been doing, as I said, reading and doing some research for that. But how are you feeling about people? Is that because obviously, you know, Magpie Murders was um, hugely successful and, sort of, and beloved. Do you feel excited for the people who love that book to, to get to this one? Do you feel, do you have any kind of, as a, a very seasoned writer, do you have any anxiety or are you just taking it as it comes? I'm always anxious. When I finish a book, I get, or rather, in the, in the run-up to the end, that final moment, the end, I, and I sit there and I look at it. When I finish a book, I think it is genius. It is the greatest book ever written. I am absolutely certain it's going to sell a million copies. Two weeks later, I think it is complete rubbish. I don't know why I've written it. My publisher's going to hate it. The critic's going to tear it up. And it's not going to sell a single copy except in the local Oxfam shop. That's how it goes. And that anxiety has never left me. At the moment, Moonflower Murders is in a sort of a, I'm in between sort of fear and, and euphoria with the book. I think it's good. I think it's worked. I say this because some people have now read it. That's sort of the terrible moment of, you know, when the proofs go out and friends and, and, and acquaintances and, and critics and bloggers have a first opinion on it. I wasn't going to ever write a sequel to Magpie Murders. Uh, it was requested by my publisher, mainly because she liked very much the main character, who is um, a female, our editor, working in a, well now no longer working in a publishing company, but who sort of becomes a sort of a, she's not really a detective, but she investigates a murder. But what I like about the books and what makes them fun to write and what has been in the back of my mind for a very long time is the idea of subverting the whodunit, of using murder mystery, which is a sort of a slightly peculiar genre, but to use it in a more positive way, to, to, to probe in a way the whole nature of writing and reading and literature and why we enjoy these sorts of books. So, you know, it's the same sort of setup that she's investigating a murder, the solution to which is contained in a book that was written a long time ago and, and one, so one feeds on the other. And I was very happy to return to the character and I think the book works. So I'm sort of, yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think it's a really thrilling and skillful thing to do. I think you're right that at the moment, so many people are reading thrillers and, you know, there's a real kind of, 
lust for a whodunit. I mean, you might say, you know, that never went away, but I think they have become very, very fashionable. And I think being able to appeal to a reader on many different levels and that they feel sort of allied, you know, with that character. And I I think readers are a little bit vain. They like it when a writer appeals to their intelligence. And I think you do that very masterfully. Well, you're kind, but I mean, you know, we haven't, one thing we haven't talked about always because is, of course, the fact that I am always reading murder mysteries. I mean, I read piles and piles of them. And again, during lockdown, it's been an opportunity to catch up with all the sort of the great writers from, you know, John Dickerson Carr to um, Josephine Tay, Nagayo Marsh, and actually to delve back into the world of, of um, that. But you see, what, what that is about is about the way reading informs my work. I mean, pretty much, I would say 70% of what I read, I read because it is necessary and informative and inspirational for the writing that I'm doing. So, so and, and some of it is quite dry, the research into 1960s Russia. Some of it is really quite exciting, like, for example, you know, reading modern murder mysteries and old ones. And, and, but all of it is a pleasure. Huge thanks to Anthony and do read Moonflower Murders, an elegant and compelling novel for anyone who relishes a really smart mystery. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a five-star review. I'm an approval addict and it helps new listeners to find the podcast. I leave you with this from Toni Morrison. I write the way women have babies. You don't know it's going to be like that. If you did, there's no way you would go through with it. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.